Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Unholy Trinity Podcast. Three blues. Three opinions. One Everton Podcast. Welcome to episode 53 of the Unholy Trinity Podcast, where this week I'm delighted to say we've been joined by author and long-suffering Evertonian like the rest of us, Jim Keoghan. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. No worries. It's uh, it's great to have you on. Um, we're gonna we're gonna touch on, unfortunately, what's happened uh, at Molyneux this afternoon, later on in the show. Uh, but we're gonna hopefully bring a little bit of a bit of joy and positivity to the podcast and to our listeners early on, uh, because you've got a book which has come out recently, uh, which focuses on the the iconic Everton number nine shirt. Um, and basically, the, the first question from, from us is, how did it come about and what was the story behind you writing that particular book? Um, I was looking for something to do during lockdown, uh, apart from like homeschooling me kids. And um, I read something, I think, I think it was an interview with Calvert-Lewin, where he talked about wanting to wear the number nine shirts and talking about kind of the, the history of it and what it meant to the club. And I began thinking that those, those sort of shirts of they're dying out because of squad numbers. There aren't that many left. Where like you, you, you mention number and you, and you think of a player and you think of a club. I think Everton are one of the few clubs left where there's a shirt that means something. So I, I, so the, the idea of the book was to look at why that's the case. And so it, it boils down to you know a handful of players who through our history have meant something to different generations of supporters and they've all worn that shirt and most of them have been a certain kind of player as well you know big strong the kind of player who will die for the shirt who will charge through uh, a melee of defenders to head the ball so the book kind of it's 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 nine chapters dealing with nine players so it's dean uh, lawton hickson uh, royal like uh, Latchford, Young, Sharp, Gray, and Ferguson. I think, I think that's nine, isn't it? Um, yeah. And um, yeah, and just a look at kind of you know how they came to the club, sort of the 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 the, the games and the era that made them, and um, and also what happened to them, you know, towards the end of their careers too, which often doesn't get talked about that much. And it's fair, it's fair to say, obviously, you mentioned the, the the nine names there, and obviously they they start off with with probably our most revered ever player in, in Dixie Dean, and I'll finish off with probably our last revered number nine, almost you'd say in in Big Duncan Ferguson. And there's something in there, I'd say for for everyone. I mean, re- reading the book, 
um, we said just before we started recording, you know, reading the book, I picked up a, a lot and learned stuff that I didn't know. Um, I think it, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a quote in the book that mentions about Evertonians know the history. Obviously, it's, it's in, one, in one of our songs as well. And we, we like to know, obviously, all about the club and things that have happened. But there's certainly something in there for everyone and fans of, of all ages and all ages. Yeah, but hopefully, hopefully it kind of, I mean, I think what's nice is that these figures often uh, that are sort of associated with, um, well, a lot of them with good times for the clubs too. It's not all uh, always the case, but like, if you know, Dean, uh, Lawton, Sharp, Grey, Royal, these are times when Everton were kind of at their peak, you know, winning titles, bringing home cups. And it's, you know, just, just, just for me as a writer, it was nice to dip into their history and look back at, at, at those times as well. Well, just I'll just bring in lately and because we've all obviously uh, looked through the book and and obviously picked up various things from it. It comes to you firstly reading that and obviously looking at where we are now as a club and we, obviously we're, we're a big club. You 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 remember and you understand why we see ourselves as such a big club. Looking at those names and looking at those, um, you know, the trophies that we've won with those with those kinds of players. <clears throat> Absolutely, hundred percent, mate. I mean. It... A lot of those players, like you've just you've just mentioned yourself there, Jim. You know they're associated with normally, you know, good times with with the club. They they, they weren't just revered number nines and fan favourites. They were absolutely very very good footballers as well. Um, it was interesting reading the Dixie one because obviously none of us are around then when he was obviously in his pomp. Um, but I mean, you know how he came about from Tranmere, came into Everton, and you know like anyone had that sort of a bit of a tricky start. Then almost like you know. I didn't even know what you'd wrote in the book as well. He'd had a, a quite a severe injury, didn't he, yeah. in terms of coming off coming off his motorbike, like a life or death situation. Um, I mean, that that that's just really intriguing. Just reading that, and obviously he came back from that, and then um, even it's quite funny reading the bit where people actually thought he had metal plates in his head, so that's why he had <laughs> such a good header, which was hilarious. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> but obviously that was all a myth, wasn't it? Um, yeah. But um, when you look at his his goal scoring record, it, it just it just beggars belief. Um, and obviously football was quite different then, but it was still outstanding achievement what he actually did. Um, and obviously he was associated with difficult times with the club as well as obviously successful times as well. In between, obviously, you know, very difficult time for us as a country um, during that sort of time. So I found that bit particularly interesting reading up on his particular history uh, and I enjoyed that particular chapter as well. What 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 are what are you what are your thoughts, Pete? Because I obviously you mentioned there the, the the big names, Lee's thoughts, obviously on on Dixie Dean. Yeah, looking sort of towards obviously the, the the modern day and thinking about obviously the age that we are. We we've been brought up on you know a, a diet of Duncan Ferguson and this squash buckle and centre forward uh, number nine. You know, Graham Sharp was a latter years as well. Uh, we weren't probably lucky enough ourselves to actually see. We weren't looking to see Sharp and Andy Gray in the pomp together in the in the mid eighties, um, but it, you know it shows you th- th- those names are absolutely sensational names in the world of English football, aren't they? Definitely, and I, I think there's something about you know the quality of a number nine that's not being quite captured by you'd probably say other strikers Everton have had since Ferguson, wouldn't you? You know we think about the likes of Yakubu, Lukaku, great at sticking the ball in the net. You know, great goal-scoring statistics, but, you know, never really captured the hearts of the fans or never really embodied that sort of number nine spirit. You know, like you say, dying for the shirt, putting a shift in. Um, great stories, great characters. Um, I wanted to ask you, Jim, how you went about 
doing your research um, for sort of each chapter because you managed to sort of capture not just each number nine, but sort of like the historical context of the club and what was going on at the time. Yeah, well, I think in the books that I've written on Everton in the past, I always like to kind of uh, get a fan point of view as well. So I think if you just concentrate on like, uh, you know, match reports and even talking to the players themselves, you don't get the full picture. It's the fans who lionise these players. It's, it's the fans who these players mean so much for. So, I've always, you know, where, where possible, you know, obviously with, with Dean, there's nobody really around anymore, but with most of the players I've, I've, uh, I've covered in this book, I've got fan points of view too. And they, they, get, they give you a different perspective on it. I mean, I, mean, I think the one that kind of, um, kind of touched me the most was, I think it was Dave Hickson, because when, when I think because he was a, um, a forward during quite a lean time for the club, and yet the people who were around at the time, they absolutely idolise him. They just love him. Even though we, we didn't win anything with him. And, you know, he, he maybe isn't the best player amongst these nine. But he is so loved. It's just quite incredible when you talk to them. And the funny thing with Dave Hickson was as well, which some people might not might not even know or remember, is that he crossed the park, didn't he? He, he went across yeah. to, to Liverpool. And some Everton fans were, were, were threatening to actually go and support Liverpool on the fact that... <laughs> Isn't it Dave Hickson went across the park, and it's you know what 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 a thing to say in the in the current climate. Um, yeah. You know, you, you couldn't see it in in the current current day and age. But it, does does that show maybe back then the connection between fans and player? Is is that is that maybe what what it was back then compared compared to now? Do you think? Maybe it is. I think maybe with with the uh, Liverpool thing, I don't think there's the same degree of hate. Maybe that that there is now. I think. I mean, the fact that that Hickson could. Do that and still be loved. You think if, if a player did that now, uh, Evertonians would would hate them, especially as as Hickson did well over there and, and Liverpool fans liked him. I think that would completely tarnish someone's reputation if they, if they did it. I mean, if, if say if say Cavalier did well and then crossed the park, we would hate him, wouldn't we? It just it just because <laughs> yeah. you just you hate them that much. I think back then maybe there wasn't the same sense of, of animosity, maybe. Yeah, it's quite sad that. Sorry, yeah. sorry, Mike. I was saying, it's no quite sad that we, we've had this chat briefly on previous pods. Like, you know, <clears throat> is it because now Everton have not won anything for so long, the longest period now in our history? You know, and obviously Liverpool in that time have probably not been peak Liverpool over the years, but they've won trophies along the way. Now, obviously, they're hitting a bit of a, unfortunately for us, peak peak, peak time. But um, I wonder if it's, it's a whole generation of fans that have just not seen us win anything. Probably most of us lot included, other than an FA Cup in '95, and for some people in their you know early twenties, they've not seen us winning anything at all. So I wonder if it's driven by that. Do you reckon? I don't know. I mean, I I, I grew up in the eighties, and I, I you know as we won stuff, and I still hated them then. I, I can recall hating them from a young age. Like it was, I was told to hate them by by me by me mum mainly, and um, it was just part of the culture. And even as we, I, even when we're champions, it was still. You, you, you've got to hate them. So it's, I mean, it's obviously been there since at least the seventies, probably. It's weird though, isn't it? You, you hear the FA Cup story. My dad's a big Evertonian. All the family on his side Evertonian. Um, I actually sent him this to have a look at because he was he, his hero was Bob Latchford. So he just talks. He, he always talks about how good Bob Latchford was. Um, you know, in terms of an iconic number nine, and you've actually even alluded it to yourself in the chapter, haven't you? In terms of like how loved he was. Yeah, um, and that team just didn't quite achieve yeah. its potential. You know, they were sort of a nearly team, weren't they? Yeah. Um, and Liverpool obviously were very dominant in that in that period. But then weirdly, in the eighties, flipping over to that, 
you know, we were constantly competing in finals. And there's stories of obviously seeing in Merseyside at the FA Cup final and that, isn't it? So it's a bit strange, isn't it, really? Yeah, but I mean, I think it's, I think, um, I think the real sour of the relationship, I think you can probably date from Heisel. I think prior to that, it was, it was probably, you know, we were a bit pissed off in the 70s that they were so successful because they were, they were very much the junior club in the city. And, then, you know, we were the senior club. And then suddenly they kind of, they had our decade that we were promised in the 70s. And I think from 85 onwards, that kind of, that, it's like an open wound, Heisel, so that will never heal because it's a constant source of, of uh, conflict and it kind of it's poisoned everything else that, that that's kind of come come since really and that, and that's mentioned in the book isn't it because we the, obviously Andy Gray is, is one of the uh, the strikers which you which you obviously documented within the book and you know when Andy Gray leaves when obviously when Lineker comes in and, and Gray said you know obviously he was upset he was due to go on holiday to Portugal and, and Howard Kendall knocked on his door and uh, and says, you know, can you, you know, we're looking to bring, to bring Lineker in. Uh, Villa want you back, and you, can you go back there? And he said, you know, the the European ban is pr- probably what made his mind up in that sense, wasn't it? The fact that, yeah. you know, if he, he got us, you know, he was part of the team that got us into the European Cup. If we could have got to the challenge for that trophy, then he would have felt probably more compelled to to actually stay, fight for his place, and and you know, compete with 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 Lineker and and um, and obviously fight. Uh, across Europe for Everton. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the, you know, I think that's the issue that Evertonians have with with Kyle Paisel, that it had, of course, it affected lots of teams, the ban, but none more than Everton. I mean, we lost, you know, even small stories like that. I mean, Gray doesn't often get mentioned, but actually, you know, through writing this, I found out that it, yeah, it coloured how, it coloured his leaving of the club. It means so many little things here and there and big things like Kendall leaving. And so you get, you know, arguably the greatest Everton side ever. You know, those those sort of teams don't come around very often in in football team that good, and then it just gets ruined by something that was completely not our fault. It's you know, it's I think most fans would find that hard to live with, especially if the reason for that is your neighbour who you already don't like that much. Yeah, it very very much a, a sliding doors moment, wasn't it, in terms yeah. of what 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 could have been? You know, we've. We're talking about nine iconic Everton number nines, and you wonder whether if we were uh, fighting for for the European Cup, arguably one of the best sides in Europe. We 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 were, you know, they they always go back to to saying that probably would have would have won the European Cup potentially with that side that we had. And you wonder then would we be talking about some different names in this this iconic list of Everton number nines if we we, we got the chance to actually try and win that particular trophy. I, I I think so. I think we'd have gone into the Premier League era a different sort of club, which would have positioned us better for what came. And you, I think you can probably... Obviously, there were lots of mistakes made. And Everton being Everton, we always cock up in various ways and make mistakes. But I think, yeah, Heisel definitely had a, 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 long, a short-term and then a long-term impact because it, it sort of set in motion or was declining during the 90s. And then we haven't been the same club since. I totally agree with that, Jim. I think that's a really good point, that very good point. Because I think as soon as Sky came into football, you know, and ploughed all the money that came into the Premier League and made it what it is nowadays, it completely transformed the whole platform, didn't it? I mean, United, you know, were almost, shall we say, fortunate to have that sort of uh, probably unheard of five or six players coming through at the same time that all went on to be top, top class players. Uh, Just as Sky was coming into the game, that's why they were so dominant. And again, we've had this on talk on previous pods. You know, if you look at how many teams have won the Premier League since its inception, 
I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing. You know what I mean? There's only been a handful of teams that have actually won it. And you are right for us to now try and win that Premier League title again. I mean, even saying those words even feels like yeah, it's almost, and I don't want to say the word impossible. You think, like, how the hell are we going to do it? You know, yeah. the level of investment it takes now, unless you have an absolute fluke of a season like Leicester, which is a perfect storm. How, 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 how are we ever going to do it? And, and that's not trying to be defeatist. That's trying to be realist. Saying the level of investment in that team that is needed now, if we're really honest, is, is huge, isn't it? Not just in, in terms of signing players, but the salaries that are needed to pay them, You know, the revenue that's needed to actually support the actual salaries and everything else that goes with it. So you are right. Heisel probably prevented us from actually, first of all, keeping that team together, which was paramount because yeah. it dismantled because of that. And then, like you said, going on into the 90s, we never, ever, ever really recovered. No, we de- de- you know, definitely. We kind of, I mean, I think what's sad, and, and I sort of, you, get, you get this sense reading this book, that we were really like an elite club for uh, about 100 years, and we were at the top of the game. And, and the one time we sort of take our eye off the ball, partly not partly because of our own fault, partly because of what happened in the high school, is when football changes fundamentally in the 90s. So we sort of go through a period of about five years and we're a bit shit, a bit mediocre. And then football changes and we're left behind. And suddenly, you know, all the clubs who were our peers in the 70s, 80s, they do well. And we're the one elite club who just fall off the pace. It's quite sad, really. Quite sad. I think that's where the, you know, when you hear so many people saying that, that's Everton, that. That, that's potentially where, where it comes from, you yeah. know, and, and ever since that, that particular time, you know, you, you sort of see it and read it more and more, you know, um, even to the current day with a manager like Carlo Ancelotti in charge. And we, we even now, which we'll obviously touch on shortly, we just don't, we still can't seem to to get it right. I know it's obviously short term at the moment with Carlo, but, there's, you know, we, you look at what happened today at Molyneux, we just we just can't seem to get it right. But uh, ju- just jumping back to... Sorry, mate. Just quickly, yeah. I actually hate that. Hate that phrase as well. I do. I yeah, I do. It. I hate that phrase. That that that's Everton. It's like you just said there, Jim. Like you know, Everton up until sort of you know the eighties were were what did you say the seventies? They were the senior club in the city. Yeah. And now you know we've we've got that. I mean, Neville was spot on. Let's be fair. He was spot on the other day. We've got that almost inferiority complex now. We're a huge club, massive fan base, great fans, follow them home and away, everything, and. We've almost kind of this big club mentality, but like an inferiority complex against the other clubs. And that's probably what makes it so hard to swallow for a lot of certain generation of Evertonians, you know what I mean? Including the new ones, really. Um, just wanted to mention that, but I just hate that phrase. I absolutely hate it. It's just, um, as I say, jumping back to, to the list, uh, Jim, obviously you mentioned earlier on why the, the number nine of Everton is so iconic, especially now with obviously the way numbers are and People wear bloody ninety nine and all sorts nowadays. You know, um, it's it's losing its its value almost. But but for Everton, obviously, it's a it's it's still even now. You mentioned Calvert Lewin saying about why you know the, the importance of the number and why he wanted to wear it and take that pressure on his shoulders. Out of that list, out of the nine that you've that you've mentioned there, who's your favourite? Who who's your your ultimate Everton number nine? Um, I think maybe because of me. I mean, I I, I was kind of young when we when Grain Sharp. Were playing. I love them, but I think Ferguson came uh, around at the, sort of the right time for me. I was, I was kind of going to match with my mates, and it was a different kind of uh, good experience. And I think because that decade was so bad, and we really needed so, just something to believe, and you needed a figure who, um, 
who you, who you felt got Everton and understood the fans' frustrations. And I think Ferguson provided that. Because actually, compared to the rest, he's not that good. He's like, his goal-scoring record isn't that good. And actually, he wasn't a player, you know, he could hold a candle to someone like uh, Young or Dean. But actually, for Evertonians, for those years he was at the club, he was really important. He, he really, he made the 90s bearable at times when it was such a terrible decade for us. Yeah. And, and he, he's one that we've all grown up with. Big Dunk, obviously, part of the, the last side to win, to win at Sophie for Everton, uh, a big part of that as well. You know, comes in, um, fe- you know, facing jail effectively with, after what happened um, up in Scotland. And, you know, he's one of those players, and you lose to it in the book as well when you mentioned, you know, the, the sheer number of games that he missed for Everton as well. You know, he, he didn't he didn't make 300 games for the club, which was amazing, really, for a, a player who was around in, in a couple of spells for so long. Um, but I, I think back to Big Duncan, obviously, we see him in, in, in recent months when he took over the mantle as a as caretaker minds, his, his passion still there, obviously his enthusiasm for the game and what he was all about. But I'll, I'll ask you, Pete, what, what, what are your thoughts and, and your memories of, of Big Dunk? Because, you know, like, like Jim said there, he was a player that at that particular time that we, we needed, didn't we? And he was a player to give us that lift in a, in a really, really poor 90s. Listen, I, I had a, uh, a copy of the Guinness Book of Records, 1995, right? And it, on the sports section of that, I, it was a, a record at the time, wasn't it? Was it £5 million pounds we, we got him for? 4.5, I think, wasn't it? 4.5. That, yeah. that was a record at the time, wasn't it? It was unheard to spend that much money on a um, on a football player. So he commanded a lot of excitement, didn't he? I also I also had one of those old school desks. Where, I don't know what you call them, you know, where the, um, the desk lifts up. What are they called? There's a name Desks. for <laughs> Well, they don't have them anymore, do they? Anyone under the age of about 35 listening to this won't have a clue what we're talking about. Uh, but but I, I, I had a poster that we weren't meant to have any posters. I had a blue tack poster inside my desk. And when the teacher used to turn around, he used to pop my desk up so everyone could see Duncan Ferguson. Um, so I was absolutely obsessed uh, Yeah, with Duncan Ferguson. I had that away NEC kit with the collar as well. The, yeah. uh, the white and grey one. Yeah, cl- classic. But he, he, was, he was a player that everybody feared. So the opposition. Yeah. Uh, this is great stories at United, isn't there? About they'd always try and shake his hand before the game and ask how the kids are. They were always told, don't make him angry. <laughs> it's what I mean, like, like Stefan Scroon and Paul Sharney could, uh, would agree with you there, Pete, in terms of, you know, how, how feared, how feared he was. But, he was probably, and it's it's really sad to say, he was probably the last of our revered number nines. Because you look at what's gone since, and you know, not to sort of lay blame at any at anyone's door, but when you're throwing names in like Aruna Kone and Sandro Ramirez and, and people like that who've worn a number nine shirt, you know, we, we've had Louis Saha had this for a while. He was, yeah, Louis Saha was very talented, but you wouldn't put him in this kind of list. But I wanna I wanna ask you. I want to ask you, Jim, about our current number nine. We mentioned him a couple of times, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And, and this season, um, obviously since the restart, he, he hasn't picked up uh, where, where he left off. But this season, he, he's really come on. What, what are your thoughts on him? Do you, do you think he could, you know, he, he's one who maybe we can look back in, you know, 10 or 15 years' time and say, yeah, you know, he's up there with a Duncan Ferguson in, in terms of being iconic for Evan? I think with, like, um, with where, where we are now... Uh, as a club, I think 
we need to win something. I think we need to win something and him be a part of that team for him to ever kind of be kind of to, to share company with, with these greats. I mean, at the moment, he's got a lot of promise. And this season, he's, I mean, I was amongst, I imagine, lots of Blues who, who didn't think much of him prior to kind of uh, silver leaving. And he seems to have kind of, he's grown as a player. And also he plays like a proper Everton number nine. He's been given license to play like that, to, to win things in the air, to try and bully defenders, throw himself about a bit. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I think most Blues now, as a fan base, we, we need to win something. I think if we have another five years and Cavaloon's just part of that, doing bits and bobs and we're back, in five years' time, we're back in the same position as we are now and, it's, you know, everything's disappointing and we're fed up. I don't think he'll ever be held in the same regard. We have to bring home silverware. I think it's spot on. And, you know, the, the majority of players on, on the list there, that, that's exactly what, what they did. Um, and even those that didn't, did did something special, you know, uh, during the time with the club. But, you know, it, it's for, for those, those listening, it, it's a great read. It's, you know, it's, it's really enjoyable. As I said earlier on, you, you learn things that you, that you, that you don't know, uh, and that's what it's what it's all about when when it comes to it comes to um, books about about our history. So let everyone know, Jim. Where where can you buy it? Where's it available? But this one's just on Amazon. There's a paperback and a, an ebook version just there. So available on Amazon. We, we'll put a link up as well um, when the podcast comes out, so people can obviously have a direct link to, to the book. Because there's a few other books on there, isn't there as well that you've that you've put out in in, in the past as well. Just just give us give us those titles as well, so people know what to look out for. Uh, go on Amazon. There's two Everton ones. There's Highs, Lows, and Bakayoko's, which is Everton in the nineties, and then there's Everton's Greatest Games, um, which is like fifty of our best games from the past. And then there's two non-Everton ones. There's Punk Football, which looks at support activism. Uh, in this country and then I've got a book coming out next month called How to Run a Football Club which is a look from like kids football right up the pyramids to the Premier League about how to run a football club Excellent so what, what I'll do is I'll get a link for for all of them combine them all together and let's I'm, I'm going to get that out for you but it's definitely definitely I can't recommend it enough and me and the lads have really enjoyed reading it um, but unfortunately now we have to come back to the present day and, and I'll, I'll look back at our, our more successful times is over for this for this podcast because we've we've unfortunately played again today and I'll say play that that's a very very loose loose word should we say uh, with us at the moment but we we took our form from both the Tottenham and the Southampton game into today's game against Wolves and it's fair to say the the three nil loss probably flattered us Pete. Yeah, I, I, I don't know where to start. It was, it started terrible and just got worse. It, and it, it felt like, um, it felt like Ancelotti almost tried everything. I think he made about, he made the five subs before sort of sixty minutes, hadn't he? Um, it, it, it was, it, it was just almost like we were clueless. You know, we couldn't string um, a couple of passes together. We couldn't get out of our half. We. We were in the right positions. Um, you know, Anthony Gordon stood out a mile because he was the only player, I think, really with any any kind of endeavour, but also any kind of quality. Um, and I could I could understand why both him and Richarlison came off because I think I think as the game went on, it, it it was just obvious that we weren't going to get anything out of it, and it was a case of damage limitation and thinking about the next game. But it was embarrassing, um, and I think we all hate to see. I think you hate to see your football team not do the basics. 
and 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 that's that's exactly right. And I think the the frightening thing is, even since the restart, we've touched on this. And the first three games, we picked up seven points. And let, let's be honest, we didn't play particularly well. We had good moments against Leicester. You know, we had a better second half against Norwich, and arguably could have won the derby in, in what was what you know it wasn't a, a fantastic game. But since since then, picking up a point in, in the last three games, and we we said this. If you want to try and get European football, it was there to fight for. The players knew that. Then you've got to pick up points from those teams around you, and that's exactly what we what we failed to do. Um, and the most the most disappointing thing is, and I put this on on Twitter earlier on, is if you can't get motivated to play for a manager who's arguably one of the best managers in Europe, then you may as well just give up football. I don't know what what your thoughts are, Jim, on on the current the current crop and the the lack of motivation. It's just disappointing, isn't it? It's just you, you mean I think that 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 that's a good way before embarrassment. You're watching it and you're and you and you're ashamed to um to be an Evertonian because it's you know that that and the spare performance in particular. I, I know this what against the Saints wasn't that good either, but just so um Wolves just looked so much better. I I like to play a different a different form of football. It's just you know it's just we were second best, you know, from the first whistle really, and it's. I don't think it helps that you've probably got players there who know you haven't got a long-term future under Ancelotti. I mean, someone like Stigerson probably knows he's not going to be part of his plan in the future. I imagine Davis is getting the feeling now that, you know, as soon as we get a better player, he, he probably won't play again for the club. So, I mean, the, the heart of your midfield is, you know, look, they look like they've got no confidence at all either. They're, I mean, you want those players to, to take risks, don't you? Players like Sigurdsson to, to do something special and try and get the ball forward. Every pass is backwards because they just don't want the ball. I've got a stat here that I think reinforces that. So, in the game, our pass completion was 82.2%, Wolves 86.3%. In the attacking third, Wolves 72.1%, ours was 59%. So almost fifty percent of the time in the final third, we just gave the ball straight back to them. Oh, I think I think in the first sixty minutes, we touched on this on uh, in commentary before. I think we touched the ball in, in their box once in the first sixty minutes, which is an absolutely incredible stat. And we, we've said this for a while. Obviously, there seems to be an issue surrounding obviously the central midfield, and we haven't got someone with with the legs of it and it's used to guard a gate. Someone who you can, you know, provide that that bit of support for our centre halves as well. He's got that energy. We, we haven't got that, but the football seems to be very, very slow. You know, the, the passing you mentioned there, Jim. You know, Sigurdsson never seems to go forward with the ball. He never ever receives the ball on the half turn. We, we were praising the Wobie when he first came. We, we always receive the ball on the half turn, looking forward. Not one player there today in that midfield. What bar Anthony Gordon? I'd say wanted to make things happen. And you've got then two strikers up top who, you know, have banged in pretty much 30 goals between them this season, look, look, you know, lively. And they must be so frustrated to to not be getting any kind of service. There's literally a huge gap. Every single time Calvert-Lewin or Charlton gets the ball, there's a huge gap between them and the players behind them. And that's that's the most frustrating thing. I don't know, what, what are your thoughts, Lee? Because, you know, we, we, we've mentioned a few of these points in, in recent weeks and recent games, but it's getting more and more frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, <clears throat> massively, mate. Um, I was really concerned for us this week when we did the pod last week with these games coming up, purely because a combination of have we got enough bodies in terms of quality, particularly in the middle of the park, to get results in these games, 
Ancelotti has almost been forced to play the same players, we can pretty much name the starting eleven between us. Teams can do that the same. Um, I think this has definitely favoured certain teams who've got much larger squads than we have since we've come back. But something's happened like in the lockdown because if you look at under Carlo's games uh, when he was having a reasonable run before we got beat by Chelsea, um, we were we were a really big goal threat. We were we weren't just scoring goals. We were having you know fifteen plus shots a game. Now if you look at the last few games, we've got nowhere near that. You know the team's almost playing thirty yards too deep. That's why we can't, you know, we can't get up to support uh, Calvert Lewin and Richarlison. So I don't know whether that's conscious from Ancelotti, almost kind of, kind of saying, look, the only way we're going to get results here is by being difficult to beat, and then hopefully we can try and nick a goal on the counter or nick a goal through, like we did in the week, through an absolutely incredible pass from Luca D through to Richarlison, who finished it brilliantly. And I don't know whether that's a conscious thing from him, knowing that the midfield is so lightweight that we can't. You know, we can't, we have to play that way in order to try and get any form of result because the Wolves analogy is a really interesting one because we played Wolves first game when they came up and obviously they'd obliterated everyone in the championship. And I remember all of us were kind of saying, going to be a tricky game that, you know, just come up. And we probably should have won that game. Richarlison got two that day and we played really well at that gap. Now, if you fast forward to now, I mean, it, the regression is unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, they've been very consistent. I'll give them massive credit. You know, the managers that he's had them for three years now, they've got a real Portuguese core in the team. They've got some technically good players, but they know the system and they play a certain way and they play, well, it looks like they play they play 100% for the manager. And I thought today, both Carlos and Seamus' comments were absolutely very, very poignant. They, they were damning, weren't they? Almost, you know, we, we haven't really seen Carlo come out and... And say what he said. Basically, said you know it, it wasn't good enough. S- simple as that. It was. It was. He had to use the word unacceptable. Um, and the they said to Carlo, obviously they'd spoken to the Seamus Coleman already, and as the captain of the side, Coleman was very very critical. Um, you know when he said, you know we, we've been hiding behind managers for far too long, and this manager out of all managers will not accept that. Um, now as the captain, it was right that he did say that. Um, it's, it's probably the first time people always have a little moan don't they about rallying cries and how many times do we lose a couple of games and then we see on the Everton website oh Seamus Coleman issues rallying cry and to Everton fans and we, we must do better we see it quite often and it was you know we see that almost as giving, giving lip service you know to, to the fans in a way whereas it felt different today to be honest I, I think out of all the players and Carlo said you know if if the other players had the same commitments as as Seamus Coleman, then obviously we're going to be a much better side and they should be taking the captain's lead. And it's, it's very, very damning. But like I said, if you can't raise your game for one, Everton Football Club first of all, and most importantly, but secondly, Carlo Ancelotti, we, there's definitely issues there, isn't there, Jim? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's worrying how many players you, you feel... Um... You know, how many players you don't want in that team next year? I think that's the worrying thing. And in the summer, you you aren't going to get a massive call. You won't. You, you can't. You know, sell ten players, bring it. To, it's not going to happen. Some of these figures, you know, who we don't like seeing playing for Everton, or we don't think they're putting the effort in, are still going to be there next season, which is, which is a concern. You know, like 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 Pickford, who looked like today, like he was just taking the piss today. He was just just having a laugh, just you know, dropping things, 
things through his legs. You think that's our keeper. That's somebody we're meant to be, you know, a really important part of the team. And he's just he just doesn't give a shit. And it's, that's that's a massive concern. He's a huge investment, isn't he? Pickford spent a lot of money on him. Three years on, doesn't really seem to have improved. But like, what are we going to do? Sell him at, at a loss and get a new keeper in and what? Bring a, a centre half and two centre midfielders and a new winger and maybe a forward and get rid of all this dead wood from the books. It's not going to happen, is it? I, th- I think there's more important positions than Pickford to, to look at. But, but every single week that goes by, Jordan Pickford gives you more and more reasons to, to dislike him and, and want to get rid of him. You know, obviously 28 million quid or something like that. He had a really good first season, won, won player of the year and things like that for the club. And, you know, he was one player out of everyone in that particular season who you thought, yeah, we can rely on him. You know, his distribution was very, very good as well. Um, and since then, for me, he's gone backwards. He's always had concentration issues anyway. But we're seeing it more and more. And, you know, they, they said on commentary today, I think it was Carragher mentioned that, every single game, you know, he's, he's going to make a mistake. And Peter said earlier on, every single game, he's going to make two or three mistakes. And, you know, how long do you put up with that? And he's only keeping his, his place in the side because what's behind him is is utter crap, basically. There's nothing there. There's no one there to push Jordan Pickford. So he can pull tongues and laugh and what have you. But that isn't my biggest issue with Pickford. His reaction's not my biggest issue to it. My biggest issue is the fact he makes mistakes in the first place. I don't know what, what your thoughts are on, on him, Peter. I saw you looking to, looking to come in there. Well, I saw a great post earlier on the social media. Someone said the only reason to Kellenberg's on the bench is because he's Carlo Ancelotti's half-time smoking partner. <laughs> <laughs> the hologram. But, but it, it's worrying, isn't it? Because you, you, you know, you're both dead right. He, he can only get away with it for so long. But we've got you know financial fair play hanging over us, and we've got so much dead wood at the club. You know, taking up wages, and you know who we would need really to sell for transfer fees, not just let go. You know, or, or sell for cheap like we did with Schneidlin. Look to recoup a lot of the money, and I think that makes our task really, really difficult. Especially given really the new season started now, six weeks time. You know, the the um, the twenty 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 one seasons off starting September twelfth, thirteenth of September. So. You know, like um, like Jim was saying, we're, we're not going to be able to get rid of loads of players and bed in, you know, exciting new signings. It's going to be loans. It's going to be a really difficult window. Um, there's probably not going to be that much business that happens. And I think we could find ourselves, you know, I wouldn't say in deep water, but I was thinking before you look at the likes of Leeds and West Brom now, on the up, turning teams over, fit squads, big squads, potentially coming into the Premier League and not having the pressure, the step up of having to play in front of a crowd. You know, Leeds coming to Goodison Park and not having the place rocking and that affecting the players' mentality. They can come on the up. And I, I think right now a team like Leeds turns us over. And I think if we go into the set of the season in September and this isn't sorted out, we, we could have a lot of problems. I think, I think we're seeing... Yeah. So, yeah, and I think you're bang on, piece. And, you know, we've we mentioned there, obviously, and Lee mentioned Wolves and having that stability of the same manager. He's built his side. I mean, Wolves were, were lucky, in a sense, and had the luxury in the championship to be able to get a certain quality of player because of the links to, to George Mendes. Um, and they were able to spend big money because of the investments at the club. So they, they, were, they were prime for the Premier League. But what they've done is they, they've had the same manager, the same structure, a lot of the same players who've been at the club for, say, two or three years. So they know the ways of the manager, the, the tactical side as well. 
And it, it's almost similar to the likes of Burnley. Burnley are not on Europe, Europe's door again. They were in Europe a couple of years ago as well, under the same manager, same systems. So it shows that we need to, as, as poor as things are at the moment, we need to make sure that Carlo is back. But it's going to be very, very difficult, like you said then, Pete, you know, to, to go into the transfer window. We can't make wholesale changes. We can't go out there and get seven, eight players and, and get rid of 12 and etc. So on, on the show that we've seen today in recent weeks, other teams are going to want to buy some of our players who are technically on the screens because the quality is just not there. And they're not, they're not putting themselves in, in the shop window anyway. But touching on, obviously, what you mentioned there with no crowd starting next season, this five sub rule is apparently going to be going to be passed it as well. So this, you know, five subs absolutely crucified sides like ourselves who haven't got huge squads and plays into the hands of those those better sides and those better organised sides as well. So it could be a case of if we don't get it right in the window, it could be. I'm not going to say a season where we're fighting relegation, but it could be a season where we don't hit the heights that many people expect us to to be hitting. Lee. I think I think those expectations need to be very much managed by the club <clears throat> massively. Anyone expecting us to be pushing up in the Champions League places next season needs a reality check. And and and, and I know it's you know it's good to have ambition, um, but we have to be very very honest here. Jim touched on it there in terms of who we'd be able to sign. Um, and you know, I was looking. I'm just looking at the league here. You mentioned before, Mike. You know, the likes of Wolves are on 55 points pushing. You know, potentially outside chance of Champions League, but definitely Europa. And obviously, they've done all right in Europa this season. Sheffield United are one point behind them. Now, no disrespect to Sheffield United. They're a very, very well-drilled side who play a certain way, but they've got no superstars. That shows you, for me, how weak the league is this year. Leicester are in third place at the minute. They're winning at the minute. Plus 33 goal difference. City, plus 57. Liverpool, plus 50. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, City, since they've come back, they've won three times, 5-0. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it, the gulf between those two top sides and the rest is absolutely unbelievable. You know, and as you said, Burnley, Burnley pushing for an outside chance. And like I said on the pod last week, they only scored about seven goals this season. You know what I mean? It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and we've, we've just got to get a reality check because what you'd say about those sides, there's not, I can, I can probably name probably a handful of players I'd want out of those teams. But what those players do is they give 120% every week for the manager. And there's teams, there's players in our dressing room. We need to have, like Seamus said, have a look in the mirror and go, right, do you actually want to play for this football club? Because for me, I mean, you can see there's certain players on that pitch that just hate losing. They just hate losing. Never mind their own personal sort of motivation. I mean, I hate losing. I'm absolutely dreadful. I'm the world's worst loser. But Richarlison's exactly the same. He just hate. you can tell he hates losing a football match. Seamus Coleman, you probably say, is another one. Maybe Luca Dean as well. But the rest, you think, where's your pride here in yourself? Yeah, you know I mean, like, you know, if I was losing the match and I was getting getting the run around, I'd be trying to kick people. I'd be trying to leave, do something to try and change the momentum in the match. Yeah, you know I mean, or at least screaming at the players or whatever. Because we, we can talk about leadership. That's another topic. But th- th- I don't think there's, there's probably only a fraction of those players in that team that actually don't. Oh, ne- never mind. We've just lost another game of footy. Never mind. You know what I mean? Let's just try and get back on the bus and we'll play again next week. And that, that's, that, for me, is not good enough. You want a team in there of winners. Not necessarily winners who've won trophies, but people that just want to win a football match. And that's a massive job for Carlo to 
and brands, not only to bring players of talent in, but players with the right attitude as well. That would change the psyche of the club. That's yeah. my that's my my bit on it anyway. We've always said, haven't we, that the, and it's been alluded to numerous times since we've returned as well about the the Everton mentality. And you know, when we go to to places like uh, like Spurs and Arsenal and Liverpool and United and teams like that, that we were beaten before we, we even play the game. Um, and that that's a mentality thing. Now, mentality only changes with personnel, you know. And that, that, that let's get that right. You've got it in the manager. You've got someone who's a serial winner. You've got to get it within within the players. Some will be able to to change and be morphed into a winner. Some of the younger players, you can obviously they haven't had, you know, 10, 10 years or so of the club where they've, they've got a particular mentality. But you, we've, we've mentioned this in the past. Is it ingrained in the club? Is it something which they pick up on straight away? We just don't know. But there's got to be there's got to be a, a big shift. And we said before, Lee, when, when I spoke to you before uh, we recorded about Europe and is not getting Europe now is is that done us a favour? I don't know what you what do you think, Jim? Because obviously the size of the squad we've got and the fact that we won't be able to make you know numerous signings is it a bad thing that we're not going to qualify for Europe? Uh, yeah, I I didn't want us to this this time round. I thought that the it's a it's a fragile uh, squad. I think the, the, you know if we, next season we're going to have most of the same players there. It doesn't take much to knock on confidence at the moment, and I think having kind of a, having a, a Europa League campaign early on and more games, you know, we saw that when in the when Kuman was in charge, it, it, it ruined the side. And I think I, it does not need that. I know it affects the calibre of players that you can bring bring in, but hopefully having a manager like Ancelotti can sort of balance that. You haven't got Europe, but we've got him, so I'm I'm relieved. I mean, I, I didn't think there was much chance anyway, to be honest. But I'm quite, I'm quite chuffed that it's not, it's not going to happen. What, what do you think, Pete? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think when we spoke about it on the the pod a while ago, when, when there was a slim chance of us <laughs> making Europe, um, yeah, I said I, I felt it was too soon for the squad simply because, you know, so many changes with again a new manager coming in, um, having a thin squad, and then having to balance, you know, a Thursday night game in probably. Eastern Russia, <laughs> with yeah. uh, with then having you know your, your game on a Sunday, I I think it, it it takes the sword to your Premier League progress, and I would rather us progress in the league and do well in the cups than you know it's such a long long competition. Is it the Europa League? I know they've tried to cut it down since it was um, the UEFA Cup, but it's still far too long. I don't know why they've got so many qualification stages and legs. It it needs to resemble something closer to the Champions League for me. It's certainly certainly a lot of work to be done, and we mentioned there in in the summer for us to obviously be be pushing those those European places. Disappointing thing is, as I say, we just haven't turned up for for the last last three games. Really, we haven't shown any kind of desire to want to get uh, into those those European places. But let's let's look ahead if, if we must, because obviously the the games the seasons only got got a few more games to run. Uh, we've we've got our next opponents actually won today, fighting for the lives down at bottom Aston Villa. They they they're due to visit Goodison Park next, and it's for us the the win for them came at a really bad time because obviously they they're now in with a shout of getting out of those bottom three places after after getting a two 0 win against Crystal Palace, and they're coming to a side who looks totally totally devoid of confidence, Jim. 
Yeah, definitely. I think we've, you know, our, our next two games, I think, are against teams who, who still care and, and their seasons are over. And you, you, you look at that game today and Everton just, like, just look like a team who, who are thinking about next season or just thinking about going on, on holiday. They don't seem to have any motivation to work hard. And, yet, and if you're playing teams who are, who are either fighting for their lives or going for Europe, then... You know, it's it's hard to see that was getting anything out of those, those few games. To be honest, what are your thoughts, Lee, on the Villa game? What's even more worrying is that Villa are actually could, if they win that game, they've done the double overs, and and, and that's fright that's frightening to say because we've lost to, we've lost to Villa obviously at their place, we've lost to Bournemouth, and we've lost to Norwich this season, and the likelihood is still that those three clubs will go down. I mean, that's just. That's just absolutely not good enough, isn't it? You know what I mean? And you know, I, I, you're right. Villa now winning that game, Bournemouth losing at the minute half time to Leicester as we speak, means that you know they're going to be absolutely fighting for their lives in that game to try and win something. Um, so it will not be an easy game whatsoever. I mean, look again. Theoretically, we should have enough to beat them, um, but the way we're playing at the minute, like you said before, Mike, seven points in, out of nine for the first three games after lockdown, then one point out of nine for the next three. So we're certainly not informed. Teams will want to play us at the minute because we don't look like we're going to score goals. And now since Holgate's come out of the team, we look really weak at the back as well. So it'll be a very, very interesting game, that. Um, And then obviously, like you've just said there, Jim, we've got Sheffield United after that. And that was a very much a shock result. Chelsea have been a pretty informed team since the restart and they've just pushed them to one side there. They've beaten Spurs and Chelsea are an aggregate of six one. I mean, which is which is which is nuts when you think about it. But obviously again, they play a certain way, teams know the way they're gonna play, but they just out compete. They'll just you, you come here, we'll out we'll out we'll outfight you and we'll win this game. You know, because they to be fair to Sheffield United, they came back and had a couple of bad results, and you're thinking hey, your teams will work them out here. And look at the response they've given there. You know, so I don't feel confident at all going into those two games. Uh, and then potentially last game of the season, Bournemouth looked like they could be down by then. You know, that'll be an interesting match then, wouldn't it? So watch it'll probably be like five all or something like that. But um well, it's, they, it's, they, it's... They, they they could be more relaxed, you know, with Bournemouth yeah. the chances are, you know, they've got to play City, haven't they? Um yeah. that, that's coming up and so they, the chances are they they're gonna be down before they get to Goodison Park. So there, there's nothing to play for. Both sides have got nothing to play for. There's no crowd at, at Goodison to, to impact any of these games either. So Bournemouth could become totally relaxed and, and could quite easily be could chip a few goals against them. And it's it's frightening me to think that because I looked at the end of end of our season, obviously when the fixtures first come out and you're picking off, okay, where can we get points so we've got at the end of the season? Oh, Bournemouth for the Hopefully, knocking on, on the door of Europe, and we can we can pick up three points there. Sheffield United away, that's nothing, you know. And it's amazing how, how the season actually pans out. But you know, go, going into this this Villa game and, and looking further ahead, obviously Sheffield United, it's it's frightening really to think that we're going to finish mid. Sheffield United are probably going to be getting into Europe and getting European, and we we've got absolutely nothing to play for. And we're almost wishing the season to come to an end, Pete. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that gives me a, a morsel of hope is how open both the manager and the club captain have been in the criticism of not just the performance, but the attitude 
of the players after today. And you think surely after such public criticism, you know, from arguably like the, you know, the two most high profile connected people to the first 11, um, there's got to be a response against Villa. There's surely there's, there has to be a response um, after what's been said today. I'm not saying we're going to, you know, batter them six nil, but you'd hope in terms of organization and attitude um, and, you know, looking like a team on the pitch, that has to manifest against Aston Villa because if it doesn't, then we've got bigger problems than uh, a couple of bad performances. Yeah, and, and we we shown you know we shown under under Carlo under under Big Dunk as well playing a particular way. You know we we can play up and at him. We can put teams under pressure. We can play a high press if we if we want and need to. And you, you wonder whether and and Carlo was asked today whether he thought that he. The sheer number of games in such a short space of time has impacted. He said not not particularly. Every side's in exactly the same boat, um, and that, and that's why that's why you do question the attitude and the you know and, and the will to win from you know from the players and, and their their motivation. Uh, but like you said, Pete, we, we we would hope to see a reaction to um, losing you know two of the last three, not putting any any kind of performance and. And at least then we can we can take something into the Sheffield United away game, like we touched on there. Sheffield United, you know, beating sides who who were your your normal Champions League qualifiers in in Chelsea and Tottenham, and they're just brushing them. Go 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 Lane after playing Aston Villa. You, you've got to go there with with something and some kind of of um, positive experience because at the moment, the you know they could quite easily if they're beaten. Like sort of you know Chelsea three 0 who are quite you know looking for the Champions League, they could quite easily put four or five past us and and not be a surprise. That that out of the two games, that Sheffield United game is is a, is a concern currently based on the fact that we don't appear to have any kind of motivation. Um, but I'll 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 ask you predictions anyway. Let's 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 touch on on the Villa predictions first of all and see what we come out of. Jim, as the guest, I'll I'll come to you first. Um, weirdly, despite all that pessimism, I still think we'll win. I think we'll win 2-1. Scorers? Uh, scorers, uh, Richardson, 2. Keith? Yeah, I'm going to say 2-0 uh, win against Villa. I'll have uh, Anthony Ga- uh, Gordon and uh, Richardson. You're going to say Anthony Garner then? <laughs> yeah. He'd get a game in the team in a minute. <laughs> yeah, he'd do a job off front. Wouldn't he be like a young collar up top? Um, yeah, the, the Villa one I fancy is more in. Um, I do think we'll probably nick that. Uh, I think 2 1, um, like, like Jim. I think hopefully Holgate will be back and add a bit of much needed sort of pace at the back but also dare I say leadership as well for such a young lad he's shown a lot of leadership skills he's another one you could clearly see that just doesn't like losing and that's obviously uh, come through in the team um, in terms of Sheffield United that's the one that you said Mike I'm, I'm a bit more concerned about that one because you know they've beaten teams in form um, quite comfortably uh, and they play a certain style of football and you know, they're going. Judging by our most recent performances, it's not going to take much to swat, you know, to swat, swat us aside, is it? In terms of the ability to compete. I mean, look, I, Carlo alluded to it today. You know, the players are humans. You know, they've almost kind of like we got nothing to play for now. So, you know, the classic phrase, the flip flops are on. 
and obviously Sheffield United are trying to push, you know, for uh, well, they're pretty much almost guaranteed European football now. Um, but that worries me. And in terms of predictions for that one, I hate to say, it, I think, I think, I think we'll get turned over. I think we'll probably lose that um, two nil. Yeah, I don't think I've ever it, said that on the podcast as well. <laughs> it's hard to be negative about it, but it's a reality thing, isn't it, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and that, that's unfortunately where we are. Um, I mean, we, we'll, we'll talk a greater length about that game sort of next weekend because we're, 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 we're the Monday game again, I think. Okay, the, uh, yeah. the 20th, Sheffield United. So we, we'll, we'll discuss that in more detail, Sheffield United. But um, just to throw in my prediction for, for Aston Villa, I think we will win the game. I think it'll be one nil, but we're going to see something very similar, similar sort of brand of football. I think Carlo's on. Carlo sets up now. It appears to me he always alludes to it in his in his post match. He always says until we can see that first goal, we look all right in terms of we look fairly rigid, and defensively we look quite sound. Like you said before, Lee, and you just mentioned again that Mason Holgate is is a big loss for us. Carlo said he should be back for the Villa game. Um, Along with Andre Gomez, they're going to be assessed um, at, at Finns Farm obviously before that game. But I think Holgate, he's, he's shown how important he is, and he's the most important centre half we've got because he's got that recovery pace. And he, I, I think he almost brings that air of confidence to either Yeri Mina or especially Michael Keane. Um, and he's acting as a senior centre half. So I think if he comes back in, Holgate, I always feel a lot more comfortable with him in the back four. Then we win the game 1 0. Um, I think I think Anthony Gardner slash Gordon will will uh, will bag as well, Pete. Just to, just to make you feel better. So, uh, but let let's hope so. Let's let's hope we can at least get you know a couple of wins before the season's over. Go into the 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 summer the sh- or the the shores of summer on a bit of a high, and and hopefully have something to look forward to going into into next season. Jim, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Really really enjoy that. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks um, for coming on, mate. As we, thanks, Jim. As we said, anyone wants the book, we'll put the link up for, for Amazon. Uh, the links are in Jim's other books as well. We'll throw up there. We'll be back next weekend ourselves to look back at the uh, the midweek Villa game and then look ahead, like we mentioned then, to that, that tricky trip to, to Bramall Lane. So we'll catch you then. The Unholy Trinity Podcast. Three blues, three opinions, one Everton podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.